Hey friends, I appreciate you tuning into the Deal Farm Podcast, where I hope you feel at least mildly entertained and possibly even inspired to big action towards improving your life and your business. On this episode, Kevin and I talk about our relationship to the feel-good neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin and why managing certain habits can have a profound impact on our motivation and mood. And we'll visit with our good friend, Tracy Cooper, and talk about his experience building a successful wholesaling business. Hope you enjoy today's episode. Kevin, what's going on, my man? What's shaking today? Man, there is all sorts of stuff going on today, and it's good stuff. But I tell you, I started out my day, and it just it got me thinking. Uh, just on autopilot, I started out my day. I rolled out of bed, and first thing I did, I don't know what first thing you did. First thing I did was I picked up my phone. I know, and it just I did. I rolled out of bed. First thing, picked up my phone. You know, what emails did I get? What notifications did I get? What happened? What did I miss? And uh, I caught myself. It was one of those things where today I was like, "Why am I doing this? Like, it's first thing in the morning. My my feet haven't even hit the floor yet. Why am I on my phone?" And I don't like that about myself. I don't I don't like that that I do that. And so it's kind of got me thinking, you know, you and I, we're Gen X, right? We were both born in the 70s. And this wasn't a dynamic that we grew up with. I mean, when you think about our, our the way we grew up in our childhood and even into, you know, through through high school, we didn't have mobile phones. I mean, I knew friends that had a pager. Did you ever have a pager? <laughs> I had a pager for a hot minute in college. And the only thing I ever got on my pager was my friends texting me the word boobs and hello. That was all I ever got on my pager. Yeah, I, I didn't I don't have, know why I had a pager. I never had a pager. Uh, I knew people that had pager. Uh, but the first, when was the first, the first mobile phone I ever got was late 90s. I got one of those Nokia phones. Remember those? Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Same thing. Bar phones. I think it was 99 or 2000 for me. Yeah, when I got my first one. That's about when I got my first one, too. It, it was just, it was different, right? It was different back then. And, and. I don't know. I just, I find that I've acclimated over time. I can, you know, to life with a cell phone and then life with a smartphone. And really, I think we turned a corner with smartphones, right? It wasn't so much the candy bar phones or the dumb phones. Well, you got a smartphone. I don't know. For me, things changed of, you know, whether I was navigating, right? Using it, the maps or, you know, what it was is watching football. I started using a second screen during football games because I wanted to see what the reporters on the sideline were mm -hmm. saying, what other people were saying. Did you ever, did you ever, is there kind of a spot where you notice of, man, I'm spending more time. Maybe you're better than me and you don't have that issue, but man, I just, I spent a lot of time on my phone. Have you noticed a time where you, it was my first Blackberry, which was, I think in 2009, I got a Blackberry. And I remember that I was able to install Tiger Woods golf on it. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm playing like a legitimate video game. And I was actually at Georgia Tech at the time getting my master's degree at, at night. And I remember sitting in the class playing Tiger Woods and somehow had left the volume on. And all of a sudden, like I made this putt and everybody's cheering and the entire class turned around and looked at me. And I think I turned beat red because I was playing a video game in the middle of class. That's the first time I remember though, legitimately being excited about this handheld device that now I could, you know, kind of tune out and do, do fun stuff with. Yeah, you know, and when social media, I, oh, I don't know if you ever on MySpace or not, right? That was the first kind of one out there. And yeah, and the whole thing of, uh, you know, being able to post something and have people like it. And oh, now I got 10 people that liked it. When I first, yeah. Instagram first came on, you know, having 500 followers or people, you know, all sorts of people. And that just, it felt good. And I couldn't wait to like post my next thing, right? And I started thinking about it throughout the day. 
And that, I don't know, that's just a big behavioral change, I think, from, you know, growing up in the 70s, 80s, even 90s, right? That's that's very different. Wanting to get that next hit, wanting to, there's just a, there's just a little hit of, man, that felt really good. Yeah. What's well, funny, uh, this morning I woke up and uh, same thing, I reached for my phone and I forgot to put it on the charger last night, so it was dead. And it's like, no, I have to look at it for like, I, I don't, there's nothing to even look at. Like I look at the weather, I'll look at ESPN, I'll look at Twitter and like, why, why do I have this sense that I need to grab my phone and look at it? Like, what is that? What are we getting a hit of Kevin? It's dopamine. The, the, the guilty party is dopamine, right? It's one of those happy hormones. You got a, a group of different hormones that lead to a sense of happiness. You know, serotonin would be one, right? Serotonin leads to a sense of, of contentment, uh, joy, right? I mean, that's going out for a walk, spending time with your friends. There's there's a lot written about serotonin. Endorphins, other happy hormones, right? That That's a, a pain suppressant. You go out for a run, you take a walk outdoors, man, there's endorphins. Well, dopamine, you know, dopamine is a hormone that that's a, one of those happy hormones uh, that's going to give you a hit. And it's really related to motivation and reward. Uh, and the, probably the, the quintessential example is Candy Crush. I mean, this idea of, you know, playing a game and it's like you're getting a hit and you're getting a hit and you're getting a hit, right? That little chime rings, oh, you know, you're seeing your score go up. Uh, it's you're getting a hit each time. It's getting reinforced. And our phones are like dopamine dispensers. Uh, and there's and nothing wrong with it. Dopamine is a really good thing. I mean, it's, yeah. a, it's something that motivates you. There's a sense of reward. You know, if you're if you're in sales, you, you work a, a, a client over a long period of time, build a relationship and you get the sale. Man, reward, right? You're going to have this sense of of goodness, of happiness, of of achieving something. Uh, dopamine helps you stay on track if you're like in a, a master's program or a doctoral program or a bachelor's program, right? And, and you're making progress. Hey, you got a good grade. Dopamine's a good thing, but it can be addictive when it's, you know, right in your hand 24-7. And and that can pull us off track. Right? It can cause us to to get distracted from those things that are more important. You know, I've, I notice dopamine the most where actually there's enough of it in my system. Like, wow, I can tell that I've got this euphoric feeling is when I drink coffee, when I drink caffeine, because I don't drink a lot of caffeine. I'm pretty sensitive to caffeine. But when I do drink caffeine, I'm because I'm sensitive to it, I get the jitters, you know, like, but I also get this euphoric sense of motivation too. like, I can conquer the world. I'm going to do this. And, that. and it lasts for about 30 minutes. And then it's and then it's gone again, and that's probably why people get addicted to caffeine, right? Because yeah. the, the the that same hit of dopamine yeah. that they're getting. Same thing with chocolate, right? I mean, yeah. a lot of times people have chocolate, and it all, it just makes them feel better. I mean, there's advertisements around you know being hangry and just being in a horrible mood until you get a Snickers bar or something, and then you <laughs> feel true. better, right? Yeah. Well, and it's important to differentiate. It's dopamine isn't necessarily what's causing pleasure. Uh it's it, it, there was a there was a study. It was interesting because they, they they essentially were testing dopamine levels with rats. And they found that with food, you mentioned, you know, coffee, and we're talking about food, that, you know, if you have two different rats, one with a bunch of dopamine, one with dopamine suppressed, they both still like food. I mean, the, the food is still pleasurable. The dopamine is really what causes motivation to go get it. And so one rat would had dopamine levels would, you know, go through a maze and jump through all this stuff to get the food that it enjoyed. The other rat wouldn't move a body's length to, to get food. It liked the food, but there just there wasn't the, the motivation or or drive for reward. Even though they both enjoyed it, one had the motivation and, and one didn't. And so 
I think of the person who, man, I can't wait for like right now. You mentioned coffee. It's like, I think I'd like a second cup of coffee, actually, right? <laughs> I'm going to get up. I'm going to put a pause on things. I'm going to go make myself a, cu- a second cup of coffee versus the person who's stuck on the couch. And, you know, yeah. they want to get another bag of chips, but they just can't drag themselves off the couch. It's, you know, that's varying levels of dopamine. So what does it look like then to regulate dopamine? Because, you know, like any drug and dopamine kind of is reacts in your body like a drug. How do you, you want to regulate it and not over dopamine yourself, right? So what does that look like? Well, over dopamine yourself. I mean, that's, that's when you get to a spot, you, you know, you're at the movies and the movie isn't even, you know, enough to, to keep you engaged. And so you have to on your phone and, you know, on social media or playing a game and you're having to layer hits. I'm getting a hit from what I'm watching the people I'm with, I'm on a game, right? And because your baseline has gone up and up and up and what it takes essentially to regulate has just increased over time. And so I think, you know, a big part of it is just being mindful. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a bunch right now about, you know, dopamine fast, you know, essentially, you know, logging off everything. I think there's, you know, I don't know to what extent that's actually going to bring your dopamine levels, but there's just something about mental health that that's probably a good thing that there's times in our life or whether it's an hour or a day that we just, Turn all the devices off. Uh, but a big part of it is just being mindful. I heard someone, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago, reference that, that our phones have become the new nicotine, that instead mm-hmm. of taking a, a smoke break, we're taking phone breaks throughout our day. And I can see that. Like mm-hmm. I, I get that. And just being mindful of that, of, you know what, I, I don't need a smoke break. I don't, I don't need a phone break. I, I, can, I can pass on this. I think that over time, that puts us in a, in a better spot just for mental health. Mm-hmm. helping us be more effective as well it's funny I, and i without even knowing much about dopamine i think intuitively here even in the last year i've recognized that in myself again watching tv and pulling mm-hmm. out my phone and being like why do i have to have all these inputs well it's because i was needing this, these dopamine hits and so i've intentionally started putting my phone away at night i don't want to pull it out i don't need to look at it i've uninstalled certain news apps and whatnot because i don't need those throughout the day and if anything, I feel like maybe my baseline has returned because it's like it's like any drug. It takes more and more of that drug to get that same high with dopamine. It's just, you can actually lower your baseline where now you're having to get all these inputs to, to reach that same level of dopamine. And, and so, yeah, to be mindful and to be intentional about maybe removing at least some of those layering habits that we're doing just to, to get your baseline back to where it belongs. Yeah, because the, the threat is, you know, if you're in business, I think we use the example of sales, all of a sudden I'm working on a, you know, on a, on a client I've been meeting with. And if that's not enough of a motivation and reward of, hey, I, I got to get to the sale, or I got to get to the close, I got to, you know, get this contract and I'm getting distracted of, well, this isn't enough. And, I, and I'm layering in those sort of environments or, hey, I need to make, work through a, a list of calls, but I'm getting distracted because I've got a layer to get that. That's going to de- decrease my performance. It's going to hinder me from reaching some legitimate right goals for myself or my family. And that can be damaging. You know, the other thing that that I've tried to lean into is focus on serotonin production. How can I increase my serotonin levels? And that's that's as easy as saying, listen, I'm gonna take a half hour, I'm gonna get outside, I'm gonna get sunlight on my skin, I'm gonna take a walk. Or I'm gonna intentionally put the phone away and spend time with people that I really like and I love and I, I just want to be around undistracted. Those social interactions lead to higher serotonin levels, being outside, getting some exercise, even just a walk, Mm -hmm. just being outside, sitting in the sun away from my phone. And it's being really purposeful of, you know what, I want to lean into serotonin, which is much more, much more long lasting sense of well-being 
than just getting those hit, 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 hit throughout the day. Again, dopamine's not bad. It's just, I think oftentimes our behavior causes it to be misused. And as that relates to, I'm just trying to think how it relates to somebody like us or, or the, all the different entrepreneurs that are listening to this or just folks in the workplace in general, because it's so closely related to motivation. You know, as an entrepreneur, you wake up in the morning and nobody tells you what you're supposed to do. You just have to do it. You have to be motivated to make those calls and to push this project forward and to work on this side project. And it takes motivation to do all those things. And if you're, if you're constantly, you know, subconsciously trying to get all these hits of dopamine and you're lowering that baseline, it becomes harder and harder to get motivated to do all those things. So from a productivity standpoint, it does make a lot of sense to be very cognizant and intentional about managing those dopamine levels, right? Yeah. Oh, the other thing is, you know, you mentioned overload is it lasts shorter and shorter periods of time. So, yeah. you know, whereas serotonin, you go out for an, a walk in the morning, spend some time with with your bride or with some friends or, you know, that that lasts a longer period of time versus dopamine as you're getting hit after hit after hit. It, it just doesn't last as long. And so then it's pulling you away more and more frequently from probably things that are priority as you try to be, you know, a successful business person. Yeah. And it's funny how nobody, it's funny how so few people right now in our culture talk about phones and what it's doing to dopamine levels. But for folks in the workplace, I think it's a very relevant conversation. As scientific as this is, and this is Kevin showing off his PhD, by the way, <laughs> talking about all these, these chemical processes in our bodies. But it is, uh, I think it's a very relevant conversation to be having in the workplace, don't you? Yeah, I do. Well, and the other thing I think, you know, a lot of people are listening to this might be uh, younger than us, right? You know, yeah. maybe they're just coming up, they're in their 20s is, you know, for folks who are in a, a younger generation, they grew up very different than us. I mean, yeah, for us, yeah. it's, it's maybe not quite as hard to turn off and step away. Uh, but for somebody who, man, they had a phone in their hands, you know, from the time they were five, you know, they had an iPad or they had screens or they had video games growing up. It's it's much more difficult because it's it's been just a, a part of their system growing up. And it really influenced the way their brains wired up. You know, the, the neurological development, particularly during adolescent, you know, during adolescence, your, 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 the way your brain is wiring up around social interactions is you get reinforcements. You hang out in some girls as a 12 year old boy is like, oh, this is fun. You know, this is really great. Or you hang out with your friends and joke around with each other. There's something very natural about the way that we're designed that, that you get positive reinforcements during adolescence as your brain's wiring up to reinforce those human interactions. Well, if you're, you know, you grew up and hey, when I was 10, 12, 14, I, I had a phone or I, I had an iPad or I had video games. I just played, played those things. Not that that's bad, but what happens is those end up being the reinforcements and the way that your brain wires up as opposed to the social interactions. I mean, you and me, we were kids. You remember the telephone? I mean, oh, actually yeah. calling a friend as a, as a 12 year old, talking to someone on the phone and having a cord that stretched halfway around oh, the house. Yeah. Yeah, there's no text messaging. You had to actually muster up the confidence to talk to somebody. Yeah. And, and again, I'm not saying one's better than the other, but one led to social reinforcements influence the way the brain's wired. I can't wait to talk to my buddies again. I can't wait to hang out versus when you're constantly getting reinforced with, man, I can't wait to play that next game. I can't wait to you know see how many likes I got. That's influencing the development of the brain. And so then when you, you potentially you have is someone who ends up being, you know, 14, 15, 18 in their 20s. And when they don't get those reinforcements from those digital stimulations, it's almost like going through a withdrawal. It's like, I feel down. I feel I'm not getting what I need. And hanging out with other people isn't doing it for me. 
It doesn't then necessarily do it for them back, you know, when they were 12, 13, 14 as the brain wired up. And so in those situations, you really have to be intentional in how you rewire your brain through social interactions. It is a little bit scary because this is the, you know, our kids are the first generation that are coming up through the the technology where their brains now have this, they are being rewired if they're on video games 24 seven, if they're on texting, if they're on apps, they are being rewired. And we don't necessarily know the full ramifications of it yet, which is why I know as, as parents, we're very careful about screen time as we call it, but there's some real science behind limiting screen time. Because right now, if, if I let any of my kids, they'll always ask, can I have some screen time? And usually it's like 30 minutes. Sometimes I'll be like, yeah, go ahead. And then forget to, to, to turn them off or take You're them off. And it would lay, they would literally never stop. Yeah. They would sit there for 12 hours straight on, a, on an iPad or something if we didn't stop it because, because of that exact reason. They're just well, I, layering and I dopamine. I, I remember, you know, video games when uh, when they, you first could get video games on your computer. I don't know if you remember yeah, that. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. and, and all of a sudden it was like, hey, it's 2 a.m. Like, oh, now it's 4 a.m. How did I play video game all night? You know, yeah, I was like a teenager yeah. or a college, you know, kid. And I was like, how did I spend that much time? It's like the time just goes away. It, it evaporates. Yeah. There was one time uh, we lived in the house uh, at, at Woodmont and I watched the sunrise and it was like, oh, no. I didn't sleep last night, right? I mean, just because I got wow. sucked into playing some video games in the house. That's crazy. It just, but it's that, you know, it's getting that hit, getting that hit. It's like, oh, this is so great. You well, know? and that's the other aspect of dopamine too, right? I mean, there's the motivation factor, but there's the experience of time where time, I mean, and this is crazy, but everybody's experienced this where you're doing something fun and you look at the clock and two hours has gone by. Like, how in the world did two hours? But it doesn't it like there's a, there's some sort of, chemical yeah, component to the experience of time it changes your yeah changes your perception of time a great example of this is out in las vegas at the casinos there is no sense of what time it is when you're in a casino right you don't go to a casino there's no windows there's no clocks because they can cause eight hours to to drift by in a matter of nothing because every time you pull every time you hit a you know a blackjack or something like that you're getting huge hits of dopamine. And that's really what leads, that's the the, the driving force behind uh, gambling addictions, right? It's getting a hit, getting a hit, can't wait to get that next hit. And your sense of time just goes away, right? You have no sense of, of how much time has gone by. That's crazy. You're right. You don't even think about the fact that there's no windows, there's no clocks. And all you're hearing is ding, 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 over and over and all, again. And all your senses, all your senses. Yeah. It's coming in from every direction. Yeah. Well, your wife, uh, Marlene, did a, didn't she do her dissertation on something along the lines of, of video games and kids and how important it is during those adolescent years? Well, remind yeah. me again what that was about. Yeah, so her doctorate was, uh, or her dissertation for her doctorate was on video game addiction, really was on video game addiction. And specifically what she was looking at was how does that influence a math? So if a person has video game addiction, uh, are they going to do better in like online courses, you know, digital environments? In mm -hmm. other words, hey, all right, so if you've got a video game addiction, do you do better, you know, like in a Zoom call or, or learning math or other uh, other academic disciplines online or in a, in a digital format? Because, hey, but if that's if that's what you love, then, hey, is that actually better? You know, does that work better? Uh, and what she found was, no, it, it, it actually what you're doing is you're finding somebody who has, a, you know, an addiction like to candy. And you're saying, hey, would it be better to teach math in a candy store? Because since you're already addicted to candy, what if we put you in a candy store and teach you math there? It's like, no, nah. you're just putting them in an environment where they'd much rather be playing games than that. And so it's actually less effective that you'd actually somebody who's a kid who's grown up around video games, 
or with a digital addiction, it's much better to get them out of that environment, interact in person, even though it's difficult, right, to, to go through go through maybe a sense of withdrawal, but it's better to do in person. And so I think for our kids and for this, you know, these younger generations, well, it, it's better to sort of force the human interaction, even when mm -hmm. it's like, oh, I really want to be on my, you know, uh, uh, playing a game. You know, I think the funniest thing, and maybe it's not funny, maybe it's noteworthy, maybe the right word is noteworthy, is, and I'm not going to characterize all millennials, right? But millennials have this, um, the stereotype that they don't want to take a phone call, right? That the phone rings or the doorbell rings and they go running and hide behind. How many memes have you ever seen about it? And the millennial kids <laughs> right. running and hiding behind the couch or the phone rings or like, you know, anything but answering a phone, right? Uh, and what and why is that? Because they have a phone that they'd rather play games on, right? But that is the sort of the quintessential result of this. Of, I'm beginning to hits, hits, hits. And I don't want to have a conversation with someone. I don't want to talk. But that's a hindrance. I mean, in business, with our industry you go in, I mean, we live in a grown-up world of relationships. Mm -hmm. You know, whether that's sales, whether that's account management, whether it doesn't matter. We live in a grown-up world of relationships. And there does come a point where a text just isn't going to be enough. Uh, and you're going to have to navigate relationships. And so it's swimming against the tide uh, oftentimes with these digital addictions to force ourselves into interactions that don't give you the hit, hit, hit all the time. You know, that's maybe one of the positives uh, of Zoom. I love Zoom because mm -hmm. it takes it takes your communication out of email and it's allowed even even the phone. I'd much rather be looking at somebody interacting and it's uh, from in terms of communication methodology to me, it's a much better way to look at somebody, have the have that communication level versus an email versus a text message. And so maybe if there's one positive thing that's come out of probably the pandemic more than anything mm -hmm. is that we're we're interacting more face-to-face. -face. Even though it's electronic, there is still that face-to-face -face component that yep. I think has actually played well for us. Totally agree with that because you know, you're able to engage in greater emotional intelligence, reading a person's face, right? You know, how right, are they, right. not just reading their words, but reading their face, their body posture, their demeanor. And then that then puts you, you know, with emotional intelligence, you're then able then to, how can I help co-regulate where another person is? If they're upset or they're uncomfortable or they're anxious, how can my interaction, and you can do that much better through Zoom where you can see somebody else's face than through an email or a text or even a phone call, right? When, even you, a phone when call, you're interacting, yeah. you see the other person, that really leads to uh, deeper, more meaningful relational interactions. And I, th I agree. I think that's been a good thing that's come out of this. For sure. Speaking of which, we probably uh, need to start thinking about bringing on our guest, Tracy Cooper. Tracy Cooper, man. I love him. He, uh, we are so fortunate to have him be a part of our organization. He is, uh, so for those of you that don't know, Tracy Cooper is, he's one of our franchisees, but he actually was uh, part of Red Barn before we launched the franchise, came through our mentoring program, launched himself a very successful wholesaling business, and is now uh, a coach for us on the franchise side, side of things. And so he's working with a lot of our newer franchisees, looking at deals, coaching them through contracts, things like that. So he's a huge, huge, valuable asset to our business. And we thought it'd be worth bringing him on and talking about his business. So without further ado, let's bring him on. So Tracy Cooper, welcome to the show. Glad to have you, man. How you doing? Good. How are you guys doing? Oh, man. Doing great. Doing good. How have Staying. you been, Tracy? How's life in your world? Things are good. Things are good. Busy. Busy. Between basically scurrying and doing deals and working with uh, the Red Barn franchise, it's been busy and good. That's a good thing. That's definitely a good thing. Hey, so take us back. We want to, obviously we know your story, but the listeners don't take us back to what you were doing before you came into real estate, how you got into real estate, what that journey has been like for you. 
Sure. Uh, so I was in a totally different industry. I was in IT staffing for 20 plus years. Um, started a company back in 2000. Uh, me and four guys grew that company. And as we grew it, um, you know, the company, we, we had success, but, uh, you know, a lot of the corporate uh, structure came into place and a lot of the, you know, the day in, day out uh, grind kind of started to take place. So, you know, fast forward 20 years later, I was really looking for something else, something else that gave me a little more time. Uh, a little more flexibility and kind of to be kind of do my own thing, really. So, anyway, uh, sold ownership in that company and always knew I wanted to do real estate. Going back to college, the old Carlton Sheets, the CDs, oh, yeah, man. Slides, all that stuff. That's how so, I got started. Um, Carlton Sheets, man, back in the day. That's legitimately. In fact, I bought it. I bought his course at a garage sale, believe it or not, still in the cellophane, and that's what kicked everything off for me. So, I, heavy props to Carlton Sheet back in the day. True story. I can I can vouch for that. Ken came home from this garage sale with, with it, and he was all excited because how did you know what? It, well, you knew like it was like worth a crazy amount of money. You were all excited about watching it together. I don't even know. I, it was, I totally uh, remember that day you coming home with that though. Well, because it was in your neighborhood. I was in your neighborhood at a garage yeah. sale, and, uh, right. and I came home with that, and. Uh, and then I think I figured, I don't know if I knew immediately, but I figured out it was like a thousand dollar course that I bought for right. 10 bucks. Yeah, and right. I was just ecstatic. Well, CDs. I was about to say, I actually watched the whole, uh, I guess, infomercial, dialed the telephone and uh, paid full price. So you got a good deal. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> awesome. um, well, hopefully it paid off. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, that kind of planted the seed. And then, uh, gosh, I started trying to figure out how do I get into real estate? Yeah, you know, what, and, and by real estate, what I meant was the investing side, you know, figuring out, I, I you know, seeing all the new the, the shows, the fix and flip and different things like that, it kind of sparked my interest. So um, I actually luckily ran into, uh, there was a seminar that Ken uh, and one of his partners were giving back summer of 2018. And I went for a couple day free seminar and really liked what I heard and signed up for a mentorship program with the Red Barn guys and uh, spent a year working with them, a uh, very hands-on and pretty much since then, that's what I've been doing. I, I, I've done some small fix and flips, but I really kind of lean more toward the wholesaling world uh, and a couple buy and holds of my own. But uh, yeah, that's kind of been my story. And then fast forward, uh, you know, Red Barn started the franchise and uh, Ken approached me to talk to him about coming on as a coach for all the new franchisees. Uh, so that's kind of what I've been doing, uh, kind of both those at the same time. So Tracy, walk, take us back. What was the first year that you were like, all right, this is what I'm doing. Like th this is going to be my gig is, is doing real estate investing. You went through the course, went through the mentoring program. What was it? What was that first? Hey, this is my full-time gig and, and kind of walk us forward through those first few years, what that looked like for you. So I think when I first plugged into the mentoring ship, that was my plan. Um, I knew if I was going to go full-time, I, 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 I've watched enough YouTube videos to be dangerous, right? I, I, they give enough to, okay, well, you know, this is kind of how you do things. And so, again, I, I knew, though, if I was going to make the jump and go into it full time, that I definitely need some type of mentorship, someone that I could pick up the phone and run deals by. And um, so really from the start, I decided that that's what I was going to do full time. Um, now, it took me a while to know 100% if I was going to be successful at it. Um, and But, you know, with with you know, time and effort and coaching, it, it worked out and it's, it's been a great move. Uh, every now and then the, the the thought of going back to my old job crosses my mind as far as more of a negative, not wanting to, but sometimes I think back about it, I'm like, my gosh, like, I'm so glad this worked out. So no, it's, it's been a blessing for sure. You know, it's funny. I still have, and I call them nightmares because I wake up like in a cold sweat thinking like these dreams, like I had to go back to the corporate world and I'm going back to my old cubicle and it was just, it's, it's yeah. like the worst feeling in the world. Like, 
I could never go back to that again. No. Once I've no. tasted the freedom of entrepreneurship. Yeah. No, it'll, it'll spoil you for sure. It would be tough. Hey, so walk us through that first year because, you know, a lot of folks get into the business and it takes a minute, right? It takes a minute mm -hmm. to build a pipeline, to sort of wet your palate and build up and start nurturing leads. What initially for you, you get that first deal under contract. What did, what, what is that process? What did that feel like for you? So the first deal I got under contract, um, I honestly was probably a little aggressive on my numbers and whatnot, really wanting to do that first deal, you know? So I think, you know, I've learned and then work with your guys really how to, how to get better at running the numbers and comping things. But the, the first deal I got, I remember, honestly, I got a contract and I probably offered Tim K too much um, and didn't have a whole lot of luck with that one, but I learned from it. Um, and then uh, from there on, I think the next, uh, you know, five or six properties are going to contract with smooth sailing. Um, but uh, no, it's been pretty straightforward. To, to date, how many deals do you think you've done? I was thinking about that, that, that earlier. I think probably about 75 to 80. Nice. Uh, wow. And I did about, about 30 of those were last year. So last year was solid. Uh, but yeah, around, probably around 80 deals. Nice. Nice. There's a, there is an ebb and flow in this business. I mean, once you're up and running and you're cranking, you, you still feel, I mean, the markets, your approach, you, you still feel some of that ebb and flow. How do you address that, you know, in your business when, hey, you're having an up year, but you know, hey, there's sometimes as far as remaining engaged and encouraged and motivated, even when there's ebb and flows? You know, I, I think having that, having the history of success and having seen going through some up and downs, I think it's easier to look back and say, hey, I've been, I've been, you know, up, I've been down, but I was able to come back through. I think for anyone, when you're starting off, you know, the first time you do run into some, some roadblocks or some trouble, um, it's natural to get nervous. Can I do this? You know, and I think that's what helped, you know, even early on, uh, it wasn't hundred percent rally gates. Like I said, when I, when I first started the mentor program, but the difference is I had someone that had been through the ups and downs that could actually say, it's going to be okay. Stay the course. You know, if we're doing a, B and C, we'll get the deals. Deals will come. You know? And so I think that's huge. Um, without that, I think there's, there's a lot of, uh, self-doubt that kind of pops in, you know, and then all of a sudden, even, especially if you're hearing from other folks that are more in the traditional nine to five model, and what are you doing? And, you know, is that what, it, you know, the input that may come from, from outside. So it's, it's good to have positive folks to plug into, but yeah, it was, it was definitely so much from down to the start. I think you hit the nail on the head too. It, it, it is about consistency. It's trusting the process. And, and here's what I always tell people too, is like, look around you, look at all these jokers that are wholesaling. You're yep. right there. I mean, you've got a bunch of, you know, high school graduates that are killing it in wholesaling. And the only difference is that they, they got grit and determination and they gutted yep. it out and they, you yep. know, take the yep. few, put, yep. put, keep putting money into marketing, keep calling, keep yep. nurturing those leads. Yep. And eventually they start popping. And you're a testament yep. to that. You just stay the course and all of a sudden the leads will start closing. Right. Yeah, yep, absolutely. And that's, that's the thing is, is, is figuring out what the system is and sticking to it, you know, and I think that's, that's what I've loved so far with, with the guys that we brought in is they're plugging into a proven system, right? So you kind of take that part of it out. So I think early on, that's a lot of what people struggle with is where do I want to put my marketing dollars? And sometimes people just chase around the constant circle. They'll do a little bit in direct mailing and all of a sudden that's not working. So are not working. So they think because they haven't put enough time in. Right. But all of a sudden they're off to the next thing, and then they just kind of slowly get around. So they're putting ten percent into all these channels, versus really plugging into one thing and just staying at it. You're really working that, being good at it. So I think that's where the systems we have uh, helps out a ton. That those guys you don't have to really choose that stuff. Plug in, 
you know, plug into the system, the marketing's done, we got the CRM, and then bam, there's your leads, here's what to do with them, they're off. So, yeah. Yeah. so as you think back over, over your career these last few years, I, I'm curious, can you think of a time, when were you most motivated or felt like this was the most rewarding thing? Like a time where you were just cranking through this and was like, man, it's just, it's hitting on all cylinders and I just feel mm -hmm. great about what I'm chasing after right now. Can you think of a time or maybe an experience or a particular property where that was particularly true? If you say time, I'd probably say middle of 2020, you know, forward. That's probably when it really started consistently. I think once once you get to a position where you can consistently, and this is for me, I, I primarily work alone, uh, but for me to be able to put up two to three deals a month was a goal. So if you can consistently start to stack up two to three deals a month, I think that's when you really start to feel you know, success from the placements, but or from the uh, from the sales, but also you're impacting a ton of people. I mean, two, three houses a month. There's a, I've met so many good people doing this. It's, you know, someone asked me the other day, you know, I'm asking about doing this and the perception almost was, you know, will I ever feel like I'm screwing somebody up? No, it's a good, honestly, I think it's a good question to ask in regards to feeling good about what you're doing is how have you, how do you approach a seller? Because, you know, one of the things we teach in the franchise is you want to be a problem solver. And I'm assuming you having done this for three, four years now, how has that changed? How do you approach a seller now? Yeah, absolutely. That is, um, I can't tell you how many guys I've worked with or folks that had other offers. Some that were even higher than mine, but they really wanted to work with me because they felt like, you know, there's the trust there because some of these people go into situations and it, it, even as 50 year old, couple of random people this is the first house they've ever sold you know and and so they, they've never been through this and so some of the folks i've recently helped out were you know making transitions to one to move to arkansas to be closer to three grandkids and they were just so nervous up until the very end they just i i basically to make them feel better i didn't have to i said look this is going to happen we're all set i said you know everything's at the attorneys all this and i said if it'll make you feel better i said i'll go ahead and double my earnest money and this was after we were well in the contract. I mean, probably two weeks from closing, but he was already lining up to buy a house out of state. He was setting up the movers and all this stuff. And he just was so nervous. So the ability to have that conversation, say, you know what, I'm going to do this. I mean, I didn't say that. I'm going to think about, you know what, I'd rather him sleep good for the next two weeks than being up all night. And I know this deal is going to close. So it's no skin off my back to move two grand over there and let him, let him feel better and sleep well. And uh, there's number series like that where people just, but a lot of folks are just super nervous about this process. So they need reassurance. They need people that they can trust back to what you say. Ken, there are a lot of jokers out there. I couldn't imagine this guy having one of those dudes trying to push him and help him through. He would have been a nervous wreck. He probably would have had a heart attack. But <laughs> no, there, there are so many times where you work with folks that truly need help, you know, whether it be their situation or whether it be just holding their hand through getting through the situation. I felt, I mean, sometimes part of this job is counselor. You know, when you're talking to these folks is you really do build that rapport and relationship to the point of, you know, gosh, sometimes I, I feel like, you know, if I haven't spoken to them after a month of closing, I'm like, gosh, I feel like I should kind of give them a buzz, see how they're doing. I deal with them. I checked in. How's the Arkansas move and all that stuff? And so, again, I, I think that's really rewarding. And if you could stack that on top of making, uh, you know, consistently doing deals, helping people out, feeling good about the job, having flexibility, then that's obviously a huge win. And that's kind of what really draws me to this whole thing. Yeah, so springboard off that that idea of uh, doubling the earnest money. As you think about, you know, you've dealt with what well, you just said, like seventy five different deals. Biggest challenge you overcame, I mean, the biggest obstacle you faced that you were able to to navigate and get to the other side with that homeowner that you felt really great about. Like, hey, you know what we've we've figured that one out. 
Yeah, there was a that uh, the biggest one's probably it is also the smallest amount of money ever made on the deal. Um, and uh, it was because that person did need a lot of handholding. Um, it was a, an older lady that wanted to move back to Florida where she was from. Um, and she had a lot going on, but that's really what she wanted. She wanted to move back to where she's from. She had hardly, she had really no family. Her only family was her son in California, who she barely spoke to. So, gosh, I had to really hold her hand through everything. And then basically the reason ended up being such a small deal, it's really almost like nothing. Like I probably a thousand bucks if anything, is I actually helped her with moving all this different stuff because, again, she, I just got to invest in her, her story and, and, and what, where she was. And so that for me again, and I still, I still get texts from her. They actually, you know what? I still get my, my wife likes about this. I still get a ton of random texts, not random people that I've worked with, but you wouldn't expect it. Happy new year. Hope you and your family are doing great. And these are people that I, you know, bought and sold their house two years ago. You know, this one lady that had moved here, she was, um, she was renting a uh, condo in Clayton over near Decatur. I think it was Clayton. So it's not yeah. Clayton County. It's uh, no, it's uh, I can't think there. But anyway, she um, she was renting that and she had moved here from another country. She over there. She was a claim chef and done great and got here and things didn't work out and all this kind of stuff. And so she was just just she was really kind of embarrassed. You know, she's living this little condo and of her scenario, whatever. So anyway, uh, in that deal, I actually helped her out, um, helped her out something to do with security deposit. And um, I'm telling you, the state, she now actually is in process of opening up a restaurant. She's already had one, but the landlord tried to double her rent because it's so successful. Uh, she's opening another restaurant. Again, it's not a new development, somewhere like some hip area of Atlanta. And she's got like storefront, big space. It's this kind of fusion of Ethiopian and something else. But so she was like, oh, I want you and your family to be there first and all this kind of stuff. But again, I physically met this lady for 30 minutes. But, it's Clarkston. You know, is it? It's got to be Clarkston. Clarkston. That's it. It's Clarkston. Yeah. It's uh, I knew it. Yeah. Clarkston. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it, that's just a, a crazy story of, you know, again, the, and, and if you really sat back and thought of all the deals, I'm sure, Ken, you've been, all okay. you've done too, is that you could think of all the different, you know, and that's kind of one thing I really like too is, Every day you meet new personalities. It's almost like you start on this new little journey. You need to go through somebody's deal, and then all of a sudden there's this new character that comes in, you know, and you kind of spend time with them. And so it's interesting to say the least. But I, I love that thought process, you know, that every day is you really are. You're beginning all these new relationships yep. because it 100% is a relationship business. And yep. you have to kind of climb into their mess a little bit. And yep. ultimately try to help them solve whatever this issue is, whatever this motivation is to sell the house. Ultimately, yeah, I mean, chances are you're buying the house at a discount, but yep. it's it's for them, it's more worth it to get out from underneath the house and yep. move to whatever this next scenario is. And if you can help them in that move, then it's a, it really is a win-win. Like this business can legitimately be a win-win business on the buying end in the selling Absolutely. side. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I love that. So- you know, as we talk about the ups and downs and the ebbs and flows of this business, you know, one thing that I've learned over the years is it's not always about volume. In fact, it's not about volume. It's really about profitability, right? Yeah. Especially yeah. early on, if you're doing a bunch of skinny deals or you bring on a bunch of overhead and you hire a bunch of people, I don't care if you do yeah. 100 deals. If there are a bunch of skinny deals and all it did is cover your overhead, yeah. then what's the point? And I've, I've built a juggernaut where I've had years like that, where we flip right. the houses and I feel like I paid a lot of people a lot of salary. Right. But if you can do five deals in a year, and if those deals are whoppers, 
and you yeah. did them by yourself, to me, that's better than doing 30 really yeah. skinny deals where you kept yourself really busy and didn't make a lot of money. How, how has that changed for you over time? Are you a little bit more cognizant of getting bigger rips in your deals? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Last year, uh, I felt like last year I'd gotten to the point where every deal, now you're going to have what I call the baseball nails or just some singles. And you're going to have some where you've done a lot of the head lifting, you've done the work, you get to the finish line. And really for whatever, whatever reason, maybe you, you have one buyer and it's going to be five grand, you know, but again, you're vested with a seller. You want to move this forward. You think, all right, let me cover some market and you do it. But then you turn around and rip a 45 grand one. Right. And so it's really the, the average. So yeah, I've gotten to the point when I first started, uh, back to what I said, that first deal, you know, you're kind of want to cling on to something and, and do that deal, even if it, whatever it is to get the success. But as you start to get more confidence and you start getting better at the job, I think on the very front end, you're analyzing houses better, you're making better offers and analyzing these deals and deciding some of them, you know, it, I, I, I'm not going to move forward with this one. You know, I'm going to really hold to that, trying to be at whatever your number is, 10, 15, 20K per deal, you know, whatever number you set out. Um, and, and really holding to that. But yeah, absolutely. That, that's part of the growing curve is, is learning that stuff. And I, I think that's, you know, it, it's helpful to have someone too to kind of let you know early on that, hey, this really isn't a deal. You know, we, we need to go back and, you know, again, I understand they're looking for 170, but if we're going to, you know, move this property or if this is going to be a good fix and flip for us, we've got to get it 160. And, you know, here, here's a conversation you have and why, and here's some points you can make. So. You're actually, you're in that position now as a coach, right? I mean, so you're now you're the one working with, all these people leaving careers and, you know, starting out for their first year in real estate investing. And you're that voice, you know, into their life as they're looking at their trying to land that first deal. You know, the, the folks that you're working with as a coach, what is it that you're having to, that you feel like is probably most important to impress on them as they're launching into that first year of their own business, real estate investing? What, what are you, what sort of wisdom or experience are you finding? Man, I, I've got to make sure they understand this their first year. I think going back to what, what we mentioned earlier about the really just sticking to the system and coming in every day and doing the stuff you need to do to be successful. I think that's one of the biggest things. And just understanding that even from the, the smallest things, say leads, you know, if you get four or five leads coming in in a day, they're not going to be four or five smoking hot leads that are folks that are looking to sell their house for pennies on the dollar. That's just not how it works. This is a numbers game, right? You have to be able to go in and have those conversations. And you know what? If you're getting four or five leads a day, and out of that, you're able to get, let's say, two to three appointments a week. You know, all of a sudden you're talking about eight to 12 folks a week, houses you're going out, you're making offers on. That trickles down to two deals a, a, a month. Great, right? Um so I think that's that's the biggest thing is just coming in every day and just plug into the system, staying positive, right? And then really listening to folks you're working with and implementing those things. Because, and again, everything is, it's all fine and dandy, but without the implementation or the effort or either or, right? It's really got to be both. So that, that that's usually my initial advice early on is that, you know, that first deal, may, some folks get lucky and they, you know, in, in theory, you could, your third lead you talk to could be your first deal, right? But a lot of times that doesn't happen that way. You know, Ken mentioned earlier the follow-ups. Well, you know, gosh, out of today, let's say today I want to talk to 20 uh, prospective home buyers. I've been doing this long enough that 10 of those could be follow, follow-up leads. Folks, that, that conversations that I had three, six a year ago that still end up making money for me today. So when you start up, there's no follow-ups, right? You're coming every day. You've got your, you know, the leads that come into the system. You work those. But over time, those four leads today, maybe one of them, uh, is worth pursuing today. Two of them worth setting follow-up task reminders. You set that through the CRM and you move on. And then as that timeline starts progressing, all of a sudden those follow-ups are coming in. 
to your new leads. And that's really when you start to catch fires, when you are starting to get the fruits of those labor, those phone calls that, you know, gosh, you didn't turn anything today, but you know what? I'm going to set a reminder of our task within, you know, the CRM to follow up in six months. Um, the deal I've got set to close next week and the first conversation I have with them is a year ago, you know, and it's just a matter of consistently following. Sometimes people just aren't ready. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. they're motivation, but that motivation may have not quite reached the point where they can execute it yet, right? They have other things in life that have to happen, be it a surgery, be it selling this, selling that, finishing a divorce, whatever it is. So, you know, the follow-up piece of it is big too. And early on, people don't have this. They need to realize that stay the course, heads down, work the leads and do the system like you need to. And then in time, you'll start to get even, the leads start to double just from the follow-ups and other things you have going on. I think you hit the nail on the head. And that's where so many new folks struggle is, is believing the fact that this database that they're building is going to feed them for years to come. And I I say your database becomes gold because over time, all those leads you've been nurturing for six, 12, you know, 18 months, they start popping. And so it doesn't, you doesn't feel like it initially, but you really are investing in future deals. Day one, you're investing in future deals. Absolutely. So I I really appreciate the fact that you've, you've experienced that yourself, right? You started off slow and yep. you ramped up and then by year two, you were cranking and it just yep. took a yep. while to build up all those leads and build up some that's momentum, it. but that's, that's, that's it. what it is. And yep. Tracy, we super appreciate all that you're doing for our franchisees. We love the fact that you're plugged into Red Barn, that you've got the credibility of being on the street, doing it day in and day out, yep. and then also being able to help our investors. I mean, I think they're, they're lucky to have a, an asset like you on the team. I appreciate it. I love working with them. You guys done a great job bringing some solid folks. I was just, we we're having that conversation earlier. The the quality of the franchisees that, that you guys are bringing and working with, just, they're stellar. A lot of folks are leaving, you know, successful jobs, whatever it be, to make that step into real estate. And, and they're doing a great job. It's, it's, it's been a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, you you embody Red Barn so well, operating mm-hmm. with character, integrity. I mean, even just as, as the stories you share, you know, you care about people, mm-hmm. you understand it's a relationship. And that's really, you know, that's what we're about at Red Barn, you know, is, is operating with character, integrity. And we're trying to find people to come in that'll join that, that that match that. It's not just about the dollars at the end of the year. It's it's helping people, right? As you scale your business up. And yeah. you've yeah. been great. We, man, we just appreciate you so much. Awesome. Thanks. Good talking to you guys. You too. Thanks for coming on, Tracy. Have a great day. All yeah. right. Take care. Bye. Bye. Friends, thanks so much for making it all the way to the end of today's podcast. If you or possibly a friend has any interest in learning more about real estate investing or opportunities with Red Barn Home Buyers, take a minute and head on over to redbarnhomes.com and check out our investors page or our franchise page, or just drop us a note. We'd love to hear from you. Can't wait to see you on the next episode of The Deal Farm.